Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Prakash Raman, a high-performance coach to CEOs and executives at leading Silicon Valley companies. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Prakash charted his course to tech leadership coaching via a non-traditional route, working in finance and education prior to attaining an MBA at the Kellogg School of Management. After graduation, Prakash worked in brand management at Kraft and ran business operations at a venture-backed startup before pivoting into executive development at LinkedIn and then venturing out on his own as an executive coach. In this episode, Prakash shares his journey from leader to leadership coach and breaks down what it takes to succeed as a manager in empowering high-performing teams. He debunks some common misperceptions about coaching and how it's distinct from simply giving advice. And we also talk about life design as defining what it means to win your game rather than society's game. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. So, Prakash, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. I think we're both excited to have you on, given some of the pearls of wisdom you dropped in the prior conversation, but would love to actually just hear from you. What are you up to these days as a coach and what's your current focus? Yeah, so a lot of my focus, so I'm an executive coach. I've been doing this probably for the last decade now, the last five years on my own. And most of my focus, the sort of buckets that I work with, some CEOs and C-suite of some larger public companies, some founder CEOs, you know, of startups generally, they're kind of later stage. I work with a lot of general partners at various funds. And then I work with, you know, a population I call now what? They're sort of in their transition, but they're post-economics, kind of thinking about how they want to spend their time and how they can spend their time most effectively. I'd say the underpinning of all of those is that I tend to think of, uh, I think I may have mentioned this to you, but all my clients have an immense amount of outer success and varying levels of low inner peace. And so I think a lot of my work is how do you help someone strive and yet still be at peace while they're striving? And so that's, I think, a lot of my work. One would say it's just leadership, but I actually, I try, I think of my role as something I hope deeper. Yeah. And I think that's a a great lead into that next question in terms of defining what is coaching? Because I think everyone has different conceptions of what it can mean, but how do you define it in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, I think uh, maybe one way to think about it is there are people who maybe they are mentors that give lots of advice, Right. I think there are, you know, people who, you know, sort of are your managers, which oftentimes they're giving you sort of a a structure of what to do. I think of coaches as people who look at their clients and say, you have everything it takes to win. You're not broken. There's nothing that needs fixing. You're just fine. You just need to play the right piano keys at the right time. And my job is to help you see sort of where your own wisdom is and how you learn to trust yourself a little more effectively. And so that can be done by A, listening, B, asking questions, C, I think providing a perspective that person may otherwise not know, 
or a perspective based on the numerous clients that I have that may be in a similar stage of life or similar stage of career as you're in. And so I think coaches are actually trying to get you to be the best version of yourself. And very little of that is advice. Yeah, it's really interesting you made that distinction. So what, in your opinion, makes a good coach for someone who's thinking about potentially engaging someone like you? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sure there are uh, varied answers. I think there are probably some core things. One is the desire to listen and listen with all senses. So I think if you don't want to listen or if it's not a skill of yours, I think it's hard to be a very effective coach. I think you could be a great mentor, but I think it's hard to be an effective coach. I think the second thing is you really do look at people and you look at them for all their goodness. And that doesn't mean you avoid the reality of like where they could grow. But I see in Dan, I see in Andy greatness, and I want to walk a path with you in that greatness. And I think that mentality is important for a coach. I don't know that everyone would say that, but I I strongly believe that. And then the other thing is, I think the ability to connect dots where where unobvious dots are not connected. I think coaches are generally really good at that. Uh, They're able to see things from all sorts of parts of what you're saying and connect them to a unifying, you know, sort of point. I was going to say, can you say a little bit more about listening with all your senses? I think that's really compelling. And I'd love to hear me that unpacked a little bit. Yeah. You know, for example, the reason I say, go ahead, Andy, is in part because you were moving, right? You were, you had a question. And if I'm just listening to your words, then I'm just listening to a set of words. But as you and I But all of us business leaders, all the people listening to this, all of them know that there's often a question behind the question. There's often like thoughts and feelings behind the words that come out. And if I can't look at your body language, if I can't see your eyes, if I can't really like when we're together, be able to really see that there may be more going on then I'm probably going to miss the core parts of it. And think about this. Think about how many times you've had a conversation with a friend and there's really something deeper you want to get at, but you're kind of keeping it surface level, you know? And it could be about like, oh God, the pandemic and managing, you know, work and life. It could be your career. You want to go deep, but you don't really want to. The person who is you know, sort of just listening to your words is answering you directly, is speaking directly to what you're saying. The person who's listening with all senses can see, hey, there might be something we may want to, it sounds like there's something that you want to actually dive into that's more, more sort of deeper than this. Is that true? Maybe it's not. How have you managed that in a remote environment? Has that impacted your ability to engage in that? Because as you said, I think a lot of people feel this with Zoom, that Zoom fatigue where all of those non-verbal cues, non-visual cues are somewhat lost on screen. How has that impacted you? And how have you accounted for it? I'll say today, I actually think some of my best coaching sessions are on walk and talks. Like literally, we don't see each other, we're just on the phone. I mean, we almost forget that's what we used to just be on the phone, static, right? Like, so for me, I think the accounting for it is making sure that I'm paying even more attention to things like tone of voice where you're slowing your speech versus where you're speeding it up. I'll give you an example. A client of mine, the one tell for him that I noticed less when we were together or on video and more when we're on walk and talks is anytime he speeds up, it's because he 
knows he should be dealing with the topic at hand, but it's just so uncomfortable that he kind of needs to speed up. And so one of the things I can do while we're walking and talking is say, hey, notice you're speeding up. This might be uncomfortable. Like, I'm here with you. Like, let's talk through it, you know? And I think being able to listen to more of that patterns, those patterns can be helpful. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's a good lesson for anyone, isn't it, when you're in this type of environment. But to that end, when you're working with clients, what makes someone coachable? Like, how can someone be receptive to coaching so that they can take on board the the, the support of someone like you? Yeah. You know, uh, a dear friend of mine is actually writing a book that they're going to be releasing later this year called be- Becoming Coachable. And it, it's effectively all about this. I wish I had the exact findings. They sent it, they sent me the advanced script, but I, I forgot the exact findings. But uh, I'll just throw off my, my opinion. I think it's that you're open to look at yourself with less judgment than you normally would. You're open to look at yourself almost like you would look at a product. You know, you're a product manager, you're looking at something, you're testing, you're learning, you're iterating on it. Are you able to look at yourself that way? Are you at the point at which you're willing to look at yourself that way? The second is you have a real reason for wanting to grow. That reason could be external, meaning like, hey, if I grow, I'm going to get more validation. But I think my hope is that the reason actually is even stronger than that. It's a little bit like when you have kids, it's an inborn reason. Like all of a sudden you're all in. We can't say that about a lot of things, right? So why would you want to grow is... Can you tie it to something that's meaningful to you? I think those two things are pretty, pretty big. It's funny you mentioned that because you said at the start, you know, you work with a lot of very successful people, but who have low inner peace. And I think this kind of plays into something we'd love to dig into today, which is your approach generally to coaching, where you talk about at the very highest level life design. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and your approach and how you begin to peel back that onion as you work with clients? Yeah, I'll do my best. I, you know, I think each client certainly is different in that, you know, if you think about, if you think about the world, right? So some of how we're conditioned is a set of societal values on what success looks like, right? The challenge is, I think for a lot of your peers and anyone who would listen to this is you're going to meet all those things. You do incredibly well at a lot of those things. And then there's all that ladder can just keep going up. The challenge becomes, how do you overlap what actually matters to you? In some cases, it overlaps, but in other cases, maybe they don't. And so the challenge becomes, how do you, you know, when someone says, how do you live your values? The question is, which values overlap with societal values? Because that becomes easy, you know, because you've been conditioned that way. And they, you know, that's a value of yours. The harder part becomes which of those things that matter to you are not actually reinforced by society. So, for example, not always having your phone next to you at all times. That is not reinforced by our society. But numerous pieces of research will tell you that is the best thing you can do, right? Cooking your own food, you know, connecting with people in ways that aren't just about sort of, you know, transactional. These are all things that aren't exactly reinforced right? By societal values. More of what we see is like, you're a mover and shaker, you're getting things done, you're always busy, you know? And so if you value those things, which many do, how do they have the courage to be able to do those things? So 
Some of my job is to, I, I would say, if there's only one thing I hope I serve people in, it's in creating clarity for themselves. How do they have an immense amount of clarity about who they are, what they want, what they're willing to trade off, how they're going to measure it, and then how they're going to get back off the horse, you know, get back on the horse after they sort of lose or learn <laughs> and iterate on it. And so a lot of my process comes around clarity. I tend to think, though, that in order to achieve anything, there are three things that we all need. And this is after over a thousand coaching sessions. I'd say I find that there are three things that any of the leaders that are listening to this need for themselves, both life and sort of in their work. The first is clarity, clarity of self and clarity of others, meaning how you're going to set expectations for others. The second is commitment. Are you committed to your own growth, to where you need to be? Are you committed to accepting reality as it is, right? We all want reality to be what we want it to be. The problem is reality isn't what we want it to be. It just is. So we need the sooner we come to accept that and commit to that, the, the better we'll be able to uh, perform. And then are we committed to others, the people in our lives that are important, the people in our lives that we want to grow? Are we committed to their growth? Are we committed to their success? And then lastly, do we communicate to ourselves in a way that's self-compassionate instead of self-critical? Do we accept different perspectives you know, with non-defensiveness? And then equally, do we communicate with others in a way that's non-aggressive? And do we communicate with others in a way that says, my intention of what I'm trying to say is actually can be received by you? So to me, those three things across yourself and others is mission critical to, I think, le uh, leading uh, sort of a successful and peaceful life. Is there a pattern that you've seen in your thousands of sessions across where, where people have difficulty accepting reality? I think that's a really interesting idea. You know, one of the hardest questions is what do you want? Because, you know, creating clarity on that and particularly is hard, particularly for those sick, you know, for you all, you guys are your peer set. I mean, you could do a ton of things. You're incredibly capable. But what you want is quite different and is narrower. But I would say the second hardest, and maybe actually the hardest, is the willingness to accept reality. If you were to show me someone who could accept reality quickly, then I'll show you someone who's probably going to be highly successful. Why is that? What's the, and when you say accepting reality quickly, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's just take, you know, since I think there may be a lot of Kellogg folks listening to this, you know, you, you graduate business school and you want to, you, you sort of want to be a titan of, of, of the world and you start thinking, okay, I'm going to go into these industries and be a titan. But what if your inherent skill set and interest doesn't match that? What if it matches? What if it's like me? You know, I was a, at a bank, you know, I was at Merrill for a couple of years. Like, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I should be that way. But the truth is, I, you know, as much as I studied quantitative stuff, I mean, I was good at it, but I didn't like it. And it wasn't anything that really drove any of my interest. And so can I accept that my nature and my natural skill set where I find joy is one that is quite different than maybe many of my fellow graduates? That's a really hard thing to accept. Because what is that saying about me? Because I've attached an identity to myself. I'm a business guy. Like, you know, whatever that means, you know? And so I think it is actually a lot harder than we think to accept reality because we have narratives of ourselves. We have narratives of how we want to see ourselves. And when reality shows us that maybe we're off or maybe actually we aren't exactly how we see, it's very scary. 
humans want certainty. And this is creating uncertainty. So it sounds like acceptance of reality is critical for having clarity. But what are the other things someone can do to get that clarity that you talked about? And you mentioned in our prior conversation, this idea of finding your true nature and letting go of self-judgment. But to what extent does that play into clarity? And what are the other things that people need to think about? Yeah. So I think there are two ways you gain clarity. One is through yourself and two is through others. The first way on yourself, I actually think a lost art that we've just totally lost is the ability to reflect. If I actually asked you for the next two weeks, simply for five minutes, five minutes, if you were to write down, what did I enjoy from today? What did I not enjoy? And why? You know, if you did that for two weeks, I bet you would know more about yourself in the next two weeks than you've learned about yourself in the last decade. It's just, I, I think there's some very simple things we could do that are just in reflection, you know, and sometimes it's windy. It, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it makes sense. But when you look at that two weeks of data, it makes a ton of sense. You start seeing some themes. The second is through others. And I find asking other people for feedback is nice. It probably gets you 50% of the way there. Basically, they're going to say a bunch of stuff that makes you feel good. I think you got to get brutal truth from others interviewing you. So as an example, every two years, I actually have a great buddy of mine. He literally does a 360 on me with my clients, like the good, bad, the ugly. And it's great. I mean, it can sting, <laughs> but it's great because it helps me understand things you all, I already know about myself. You know, like, like, I know, I just hate to admit it. And, you know, I think that's a, that's something that, that we can create clarity on ourselves just by those two things. And you mentioned that previously, actually being honest with yourself is a critical piece. How do you people get comfortable with that? Cause as you say, it can make you uncomfortable hearing things that you perhaps already know about yourself that you try and push away, but you need to kind of learn to accept. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, I think there, there are numerous ways. Let me give you a couple of examples. I think I'll say the core of being able to do that is to distance your identity from yourself, right? Like, so if you were to, if you were to able to say, Hey, you know, I'm not talking about me. What if my good buddy, Dan, were going through the same thing? How would I advise Dan? It allows me to distance myself from myself, right? And that might sound meta. But if you think about it, why do we give people great advice and don't take that advice ourselves? You know, but the advice we give is brilliant. I mean, you know, it's always really good. I think part of it is we're, we're so attached to the story we tell about ourselves. So one way to start distancing yourself is that tactic I just said. Another way to do so is to say, if I were giving myself advice in the same loving way, that I would give any of my closest friends, what would I say? If I were just being really honest with myself. A third way you could do so is if you think about sort of yourself, ask yourself, why am I scared to tell myself the truth? And ultimately, I think you find you're scared because you are making it about you. But what if you were to able to go from me to others and say, hey, Prakash, if I were to become more of a present person, imagine the modeling I'll be doing for my two daughters, right? That becomes a why. But if I make it about me and me being good, then it's really hard to be honest with myself. Does that 
come back to what you were talking about stripping away judgment is that a key piece of that yes judgment it's just painful i mean why we judge ourselves and others is just is brutal i mean we all do it right and here's the thing that i get often well prakash the reason i got so successful is because i was judging myself total nonsense total nonsense like there's literally no truth to that in fact, if you were to look at your own path and look at the places where you were kinder to yourself, my bet is you got back on the horse faster. My bet is you actually like stayed with something longer, a little more fun doing it. And it's hard, right? Because we do, we, it's again, societally, we're told like you should be hard on yourself. Think about the coach, you know, the coach growing up, you know, it was like, like telling you to do the burpees and getting hard on you. It's like, I'm not saying there's no value to that. I was an athlete growing up. I'm not saying there's no value, but I'm saying there's, it's unsustainable. And so if you can see yourself and others through the lens of like how you'd see your child, like they're just kids, they're just trying, you know, I think you have a much nicer tone to yourself. What exercises do you do with clients to help them become more compassionate towards themselves, to become less judgmental? So sometimes some of my clients will do like loving kindness meditations. I have them do that more if you've ever heard of that. So for what it's worth for listeners, um, it's, it's where, you know, you'll sit, you close your eyes and you first picture yourself and you really take in the picture of yourself. And, you know, you look at that person and you say, look, I love you. May you live with peace and joy and happiness. And then you maybe go to your family and then you go out to sort of a broader set of family and then your friends and then the world. That meditation can be incredibly powerful over time. For our business-minded folks, I think that's, that, that might be a little less, they may be a little less inclined to do that in some of my clients as well. But what, what I usually ask them to do is say, hey, I, I, tell, I tell them to take somebody in their life that they really want success for and it almost pains them that they want their success. So oftentimes someone will say, oh, my sister or my daughter, or my, my buddy, or, you know, this person who's been through a health issue. And I'll say, great. When you're struggling, ask yourself, how would you, how would you talk to that person? And then blindly do it to yourself. And it sounds ridiculous in the sense that like, you know, imagine if I were to say, oh, with Andy, I would really be so kind. I would say, Andy, you know, hey, I love you, and I actually think there's a lot of goodness if you were just to see this truth about yourself. And then I literally just replay that to myself. Prakash, I love you. And if you were to just see the truth about yourself, it doesn't mean you're bad or good. That may sound quite woo-woo, but try it a few times. I bet you'll, do, you'll be more effective. I think this plays into something you talked about previously as well the, the, that sense of accepting your inherent nature is that is this part of that process as you say to begin to figure out what what's really valuable to you or what's really important to you yeah that's a good question what's hard when i talk about inherent natures is i have some people say well now you're just telling me to be resign just accept everything as it is that's really not what i'm saying i'm saying you have a natural propensity to do certain things. That's why, you know, if you've ever seen Strengths Finders, you know, I mean, Gallup has done years of research on this, right? Like you gravitate towards your strengths, you'll be more effective. It is not too dissimilar from that. And those strengths emanate from things you were naturally gifted toward. So I think accepting that becomes really hard because 
we always want things that we don't have, right? And it doesn't mean you can't have those things. Like as an example, I don't, I look at one of my best buddies, super shrewd, like really phenomenal negotiator. And like, it is literally, it is just how he thinks about things in terms of deals. And I've known him since we were eight. And I would say he's always been that way. That has never been my nature. And I always wish that was. Now I can build the skills of negotiation. I can build the skills, you know, but it is not going to be so natural to me to do, right? I have to be a little more conscious of it. And so when I think of accepting an inherent nature is you have an inherent nature, lead with that and build the skills around it that maybe you aren't as strong at, but what are these? It's interesting. You mentioned earlier on this idea of, of helping people narrow their focus. And I think a lot of people who go to business school, actually, we've talked about this with guests. It's interesting getting perspectives like optionality, right? They like being good at lots of things, but as you say, sometimes those aren't compatible with what you're naturally good at. And so how do you help your clients understand what those, what those trade-offs should be and how to make those trade-offs as they think about narrowing that focus? That's a, such a great question. I mean, I, I think about optionality across the board is so valued, right? And part of it, I think, is it's scary, you know? So I can appreciate it's scary to to say, oh, my goodness, like, you know, the options are narrowing. But truth be told, your options are narrowing no matter what you think. You know, if you're 43, your options are narrower than when you were 23, it, it is, you know, in the sort of strict definition, right? There, You have had a certain level of experience at a certain thing that people are going to hire you for, right? So you might as well make it intentional, then let it happen to you. So that's kind of how I think about that. Optionality, I get it. But one other way to think about it is optionality within the confines of the things you're great at. Yeah. When you, so when you say optionality within the confines, that comes back again to really understanding your inherent nature, what you're good at and having a strong idea of what makes you good at the things you do. Yes. I wish in business school, we spent an immense more time on that. But, that, but that's the thing, isn't it? Cause I guess there's that question of how do you help people unpack those things that they're really good at in a professional sense versus a personal sense? Cause you know, people, you always hear that quote of follow your passion, but my passion's the sport and food. I'm not going to make money at either of those things. Unfortunately. Yeah, I hear you. So, so I think this follow your passion is nonsense too. So I shouldn't say it so strongly. I, I, I think, so when I think of passion, I don't think you wake up and you say, you know, I'm passionate about food. I think what happens is like, I'm passionate about singing. No one in their right mind would pay me a freaking dime to sing. So like, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But really, I think when we're talking about a sustainable passion. It's like, what are you intrinsically motivated to do? And then what do you get external validation for? And then you do a little bit more because you're intrinsically motivated. You get external validation. All of a sudden you have this uh, virtuous cycle that is now what we call a passion, right? So me coaching people happened because I really enjoy engaging with people and I want to learn about people and I want to learn what makes them tick and I want to see them be great. That's all I, my parents could tell you that's been the case since I was a kid. When I got validated for that, I sort of swatted it away, but I kept doing it. I do it on the side, just, you know, engage with people. And even in business school, it would be sort of like a very natural thing for me to do. And so it became a passion. I don't know that I could call it a passion if I'm not, at least professionally, if I'm not getting any signal that 
this is of value, right? So when someone says follow your passion, it's like I have tons of passions no one would friggin' pay me for. But when we're talking about a business environment where it's like you're trying to meld things you're great at with where there's market opportunity, I just think you have to look at what you're externally validated for. I'm not saying that should lead. I think you should still lead with what you're intrinsically motivated for. You talk a little bit about Signal just then, and you've mentioned in the past sifting noise from Signal. What did you mean by that, and how do you do that? Yeah, you know, just think about how much is coming at you right now. You have more access to information right now than you ever did. We're more distracted than we ever have been. I think, what did they say? Our attention span right now is eight seconds, like drastically down from like 30 years ago. There's just a lot of noise out there. And that noise can get in the way of you understanding yourself. That noise can also get in the way of actually you winning. So let me give you an example. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who uh, wants to lose weight. And he was like, yeah, man, you know, I heard if I like drink caffeine, like, you know, it raises metabolism and that's really good. I'm like, sure. It probably does. We're talking about peripheral shit here. Like, the basics still work. Eat less, exercise more. But we lose that because even in the exercise more, it's like, well, which exercises should I be doing? Should I be doing the high intensity? Should I be doing just regular weight? Should I be? It's like, these are all like fine things to debate after you've got the basics down. So it's literally like, how are you going to do calculus if you don't know arithmetic? And so I think if all of us did arithmetic incredibly well, I think I don't think we'd be having most of these questions. That's a signal. You know, there's a bunch of noise outside of it that I'm not saying is I'm just saying it's for a very small population that has already mastered the basics. Is there kind of an analog to arithmetic that you're finding patterns in people skipping over in terms of thinking about life design or career journey? Yeah. So, so, you know, I'll take a stab at it. I'm curious what you guys think too. For me, career journey, I, I think we want titles. And what I often find is I have friends of mine who have, you know, gotten titles, but they don't have the skill sets yet. So, you know, one version is you will build those skill sets, but oftentimes in those roles, they're not spending a lot of time building the skill sets that actually would make them great at it. So that, when they are finished with that job and trying to go to something else, they're effectively getting a demotion because they don't have the skill sets necessary for, you know, for sort of whatever it is they're looking for. And don't get me wrong. I'm not sure I would be any different, but again, it's a noise thing because, you know, Hey, all my other B school friends that are 10 years out of school, you know, they're already hitting X level. Like I need to go hit X level. What if it's X level at the wrong company with the wrong optionality as we've talked about, right? And life design, I think, is the same. It's a little bit like, so many of us are very intentional about our careers, right? I mean, think about how many podcasts there are about careers and everything, right? Like, what I love about what you're bringing into here is you're saying there's a life design associated with that. What I hear you saying is that your life is inherently multidimensional. It is not one-dimensional. And therefore, the reason you ask that question, Andy, is because you're like, I know it's not just business. It's a life design thing too. And your life has lots of things with it. Maybe it's, you know, health, kids, you know, spouse, friends, hobbies. So 
when you think about the that kind of design, the mathematics there, the equivalent of the mathematics is like, what is the basic way you want to show up with your spouse such that it supports a healthy relationship? Have you even had that conversation with your spouse? Look, I mean, that's, you know, I haven't, I hadn't until some years ago and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a useful conversation. Hey, you know, with your friends, like, have you thought about like, man, what does like great friendships look like and what do they support? You know, just like basic things that I think then we could talk about what are all the awesome trips you want to take and all the cool experiences you want to have. But if we can't get sort of the basics right, I, I actually think the basics take care of most of it. You talked also about the need to balance short-term and long-term, right? And that's an important facet. How do you help people think about the trade-offs there? Yeah, it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard. And de- certainly, at least the people I work with, depending on what kind of company they're in, you know, public company, private company, on their own, I, I think there are probably different answers to that. But the general uh, thought that I hope is applicable to anyone who would be listening to this is, I think it's useful to identify who it is you want to be in three years, five years. Like, literally, when that person wakes up, when the Dan or Andy from three or five years from now wakes up, what does that person do? What's the kind of person they are? How would people describe them? And get as tangible as you can about it. Get really specific. And then ask yourself, what's the Dan or Andy of today? What are the habits they are building right now that lead to that? That give me the highest probability of leading to that. And then actually put those down as habits and to me, I mean, I'm, I might be a little anal, but I have a little responsibility chart here. I have habits, you know, and I check them off. And, you know, it sounds very elementary, and it, and it is. But again, I think back to basics. I think you're just giving your, all we're doing is trying to give ourselves the highest probability of success and happiness, right? Isn't that fair? Like, you can't control it, but you can give yourself a high probability. And you give yourself a high probability by being honest with them. I doing the stuff that actually is going to lead to what I want. I have to ask on your list, what what's one example of something on your habits list that would surprise people? Let's see. Did I love myself? I got to be honest. When even writing that and even saying that right now, I remember being like, dude, that's a little woo-woo. But I think w- what I realized was the value of that is in some of what we were talking about with the self-compassion. And so I think that was, that's something. I, I love the idea of visualizing where you want to be in five years time, right? Because I think visualization and manifestation are very powerful, aren't they? In terms of trying to get to a, a destination, how, what are the ingredients of that? What makes a successful exercise for people to think about? Yeah. So if you think about it, you have 70,000 thoughts a day that go through your head. What is the likelihood that you are shining a light on the most important things if it's not like dead visible to you. I don't know about you. I'm not that skillful to do so. I'm perfectly happy to say I'm not and I, I need, you know, a paper or, you know, an image or something. I think there, there are a couple of things. One, I would actually write it out and I would handwrite it out what great looks like. And then I would put a picture to it. A picture that really resonates with you. I remember, I remember some years ago, one of them for me was around being consistent. And it was something like, I love new ideas. And so I would find myself like abandoning something I was doing because I, you know, was in the shiny object. And I thought about it and I was like, that's not the person I want to be. 
And so I wrote out, like, what does it look like, the person I want to be? And then the picture I put was Rafael Nadal hitting a backhand. Because at the time, his backhand was a little weaker. And I was like, but this guy routinely gets it better because he just grinds it out. He just practices, practices, you know? And so it was literally an image of him hitting a ball in the middle of the racket. And I would look at that every day and say, that's what it means to be consistent. As you've taken what you've done with clients, how can you generalize? And as Andy says, what are those patterns that you've seen that help successful leaders build high-performing teams and be successful in the workplace? Yeah, I think the structure I shared with you earlier, the clarity, commitment, and communication, I actually think if you're a leader and you get that right, you've gotten 95% of the way there. It's, it's actually hard to get right. Like if I were to ask every one of your team members, hey, is your leader clear on expectations? Or, or better yet, let's say I ask you each in a conference room to write down what are the top three priorities? You crumple it up, throw it in the middle, and we all pick a piece of paper. Will they all say the same thing? If they don't, then you haven't done your job as the leader, right? to create the kind of clarity needed. Now, is it going to be perfect? No. But you can get pretty darn close. So I would I would say that that kind of clarity is helpful. I often hear this term, like, does my manager have my back? I think that has a lot to do with commitment. Are you committed to the person? Can they genuinely say you're committed to them? And I think there are many answers that I see come up. One is no. <laughs> the other is absolutely Another is like, she or he says they are, they really say it. I don't experience it. <laughs> they say they are. And so there's sort of all these responses in the middle that, you know, are they insufficient? I mean, maybe they're just fine to get your job done. But, you know, if we're talking about the ideal cases, you want them to say a unanimous yes. And having your back includes being held accountable includes being given feedback that is really tough. That includes it. Any other tips for managers who, who do feel like they are committed, but maybe aren't as good at communicating that to, to their teams? So I've heard this before, like, hey, you know, it's just not my style, right? I think one of the things when you take on a managerial role or a leadership role is you may have a style, but your job is now actually to be able to meet your people where they're at. That's really hard. So A, giving some grace to yourself, that's hard. It's not easy. I think a very simple thing is asking each of your reports, what does it look like for you to feel supported? And then doing your best to mirror that. You may notice that a lot of my things, I, I try to keep like, the, what is the simplest thing you could just do as opposed to a whole structure? Uh, but I do like that because I think understanding who you're working with is I think one of the, one of the key things, right. And I'm no, I'm guilty of this myself. I don't think often, but I think often that's something that just gets totally overlooked, frankly, right. Just understanding like what motivates someone and asking them just flat out, how do you, what do you need to be successful? And I think it's a very simple thing that people can do to have a relatively big impact. And to be clear, I do this with my clients too. Sometimes I'm like, Oh wow. I, I should just ask them, like, you know, do you think there's a, is there a common trait amongst the successful leaders that you've worked with? Are there sort of certain personality types? Are there certain behaviors that you've seen common across leadership types at different levels? Does it change by seniority and organization? 
Yeah, I don't think personality types. I, I do think the people that I work with that, you know, you know, I don't know what people would consider like a Tom Brady or something, or I don't know, some athlete that's just a winner at everything. I think they are, they take an immense amount of responsibility on themselves, you know, in the words of Jocko Willing, doing extreme ownership, you know, and they are able to look at themselves with some reality and say like, yep, maybe I messed that one up or maybe that's not a skill of mine and maybe I need to uh, improve on that. The second thing I notice is they're very intentional. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking about like even one of my clients, every time he comes into our session, he's very clear on what he wants to get out of it. And, and, and he does that with every meeting he goes to. He's just very intentional. That's something I notice. Uh, another thing I notice is there's a, there's a perspective that they have. They're able to zoom in and zoom out. So they may be able to zoom in on, you know, you give them a problem, they can zoom in on that problem. And then at the same time, they're able to zoom out and see like, okay, you know, A, in our sphere, like, you know, sort of, they could see the chessboard, but then even wider, they're able to say, I also know that life will go on. It's okay. I'm doing my best. I think they, that's a trait that they have. And then lastly, just hunger. I mean, the hunger to win and continually improve, it's hard to be great. It just, you know, it takes an immense amount of understanding of why you're doing it, of consistency, of ability to just, you know, chip away, deal with, you know, sort of setbacks, have patience. It's really hard to be great. To that end, to bring it back to what you said at the start, that sort of, that low in a sense of peace, how do you help your clients try and find that? What can they do, as you say, as they encounter these challenging journeys to try and be successful? What are the things they, that you help them try and grapple with? I think sometimes it depends on who it is, but sometimes it's about diversifying the portfolio. So, you know, if your whole identity is based on this one company, there's a lot of ups and downs on that. And that's hard. And if we can diversify your portfolio to some other things that do matter to you and how you're making progress on those things, it can be really helpful. The second, I think, is acknowledging progress just as well as you acknowledge gaps. So, you know, there's a beautiful book called, I think it's Gaps and Gains, but it really talks about how we're so prone to talking about the gaps and we're wired to be that way as humans. But that's exhausting. Eventually, you get, you know, nobody likes to be told that they're basically shit all the time. You know what I mean? When you can acknowledge the progress you're making, it's really helpful to give a more accurate picture of what's really going on. So I find that to be very helpful. I think there are tools like meditation that are really powerful. Gratitude journals, really powerful. But the biggest thing that I ask people to do is chip away at separating their identity from an outcome. So your worth is not dependent on, you know, whether you won or not. And I won't go as far as to say like, hey, go be a monk on the other side and actually simply be in action and don't, you know, like don't care about the outcome or, you know, which is not exactly what a monk would say. But I think there's an interim where you say, if you need to tie your worth to something, tie it to your inputs, tie it to the things that are within your control. If you can do that, then I think like you can actually have an opportunity to be successful every day. 
I love that idea of locus of control. It's very, it's very Zen, isn't it? But I do believe in it. This has been amazing. Andy, before we move on to the next segment, is there any other questions you want to ask as a follow-up to what we've discussed? Yeah, thanks. No, the I think the one question that I really wanted to ask you, you know, uh, we talked about this before, but I think a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast are kind of thinking about, you know, is in the in the next phase of their career. I know we've heard from a number of people that are considering uh, getting into coaching or advising, which obviously are different things. Any advice um, you've got for folks on maybe what kinds of people should or should not become coaches or advisors and, and maybe how to some hints on how to go through that journey of uh, self-discovery for that piece? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that so many people are want, like particularly our peer set of business school friends, like I love that people are wanting to get into coaching right now. It's just, it's really, it's awesome to see. I see sort of the evolution. It's really neat. So whether you get into coaching or not, I think it's worth, always worth trying. I, I think a question to ask yourself is, are you doing it because you like giving advice? And if so, that's no problem. But I would veer that in a different direction. Go try and be on a couple boards Go try and be a mentor to to others where you can impart your wisdom. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to find a lot of joy in what someone would actually think is coaching when you're doing that. Not to say you can't provide advice as a coach. You can, of course. But it's not the, you know, I hear some people who will call me and be like, you know, I have a lot of advice to give and I'd love to go do that. I'd love to go coach someone. Awesome. I would go, I would be that in a mentorship capacity or go join a board. The, what they could do if they wanted to get a a start, I would, I would actually start coaching your friends and, you know, for free, if you want to like, but just have a 20 minute coaching session and you can start by using simple models like the grow model, you know, which is like, what's the goal? What's the reality? What are the options? And then what will you do? I feel like every model you have has some version of that, you know? So Again, going back to basics, let's not get it twisted. I don't think every any of this is like massively complex. So I wouldn't I, I wouldn't go beat yourself up about like reading every book about it. I would just try doing it and ask for feedback along the way. And I think that might be the best way to do it. And then if you're going to the next level where you're like, hey, I want to get paid for this. Well, so I want to get paid for this. And then eventually it's like, I want to get paid well for this. I think the I want to get paid for this. Um there are probably opportunities like you engaging with an organization like BetterUp, you know, that takes a lot of people to do, you know, and they help you sort of find coaches. You know, there are consulting firms out there that that do this kind of stuff. And then, you know, you want to get paid well, either do a larger volume of that or start trying to get in with companies. And, you know, if I were thinking about Kellogg alums, I think about like go to the Kellogg network and start engaging with people through the Kellogg network. Cause I think I've noticed the Kellogg network is amazing. It's just really helpful um, and want to help. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's, I think it's super helpful for, for people who are thinking about this. Cool. Well, we're going to transition into the quick fire questions. First up, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? I, I, I have said that it's getting clear on what winning looks like for me for the company and for the team. I think having that kind of clarity and understanding where they overlap and don't overlap is really helpful. What separates a leader from a manager? You know, Jeff Weiner used to run LinkedIn 
said said a thing that I largely agree with is like managers tell people what to do, leaders inspire them to do it. And I think I don't. While I don't think it's that sort of extreme, I, I, I think you know managers are often ones that are sort of still operational, and leaders are actually trying to inspire people to do the things that serve a bigger vision. What would you tell yourself from ten years ago to avoid, given what you know now? External validation for internal fulfillment. That would be the biggest one, and sort of probably a sub bullet under that is comparison. I think it's useful to use comparison as a mode of input, but when it's used as a mode of telling me if I'm good or not, that we have a problem. What is something you used to believe that you no longer believe? I'll say for me, I think I've always had an insecurity that other people know something I don't. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they probably know something I don't. Like right now, I'm sure somewhere in my head, I'm thinking, Dan and Andy know something that I don't. And that is like, you know, oh, wow, I'm going to miss out, you know? Uh, and it's just, I don't know that I believe, well, I don't believe that anymore, even though it still rears itself. What don't most people understand about your role as a coach? I, I think something I was saying earlier, which is, you know, that a coach gives advice and fixes someone. I, I don't think a coach does that. I think a coach helps you get the best out of yourself. and you already have the skills and the, or you already have the capabilities, maybe not the skills yet, but you already have the capabilities. It's just you putting it towards the right context. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't? I think, you know, I don't know if like I'm a total maverick in any of this, uh, but I think it's, I think leaders believe they're tired. They're rational. They're entirely rational, logical, and I think that we're just not. We are not irrational. We have a lot of emotions, and I actually think the sooner we grasp that we have those emotions and learn how to manage them, then actually we can be more effective. What is the most important principle to be a successful leader or manager? Oh, clarity. I think by and large, like if you want to lose weight, let's say you go, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to exercise, but you don't have the clarity on what you're going to do at the gym. And how it is you're going to eat, right? You need clarity across the board. What has changed your perspective on your product, industry, or function? And feel free to, to pick one to focus on. So I think the coolest thing coming about is all, all of the artificial intelligence that we have going on. So, you know, Reed Hoffman, along with his colleagues, created this app called Pi. It's amazing. It's incredible. Literally, you have a conversation with it. It asks you questions like a coach will ask. It's unfreaking believable. And so, like, this is just the beginning of it. And, you know, when you talk to him, he'll tell you, like, there's so much more that can happen. And in, in, in just in the kinds of conversations he's been able to have and, and, and gather sort of goodness that a coach can provide, I think that this product can do that. And more, more broadly, artificial intelligence can do that. And, you know, will it ever have emotions? Maybe, no. I mean, it's a machine, but... I got to tell you, I think it'll get pretty close to there. And that's pretty amazing. Now, the question for us as coaches is, how are we using it as a co-pilot such that we actually are refining our skill to know where our actual value is versus, you know, sort of the things that I think this tool already does amazingly well. Where have you challenged convention or what have you learned is a myth? So I don't, is this challenging convention? So here's a belief I have that I don't think 
is all often what we think about. I think winning has to be defined by you. And it has to be, as we were talking about earlier, some set of what you've been conditioned with society, because I don't think you're going to get rid of that unless you like, you know, you really do a lot of self-work. I don't think you're going to entirely let go of that. But that has to be combined with some things that are unique to you. You know, Andy, Dan, you have, you, you all have had different upbringings and, you know, different structures in your family and different, you know, sort of experiences in your life that have determined a set of values for you that are slightly different. So while you both may say, hey, success is expanding our audience to help them live the best lives they do, like you're doing with this podcast, there are differences in how you want to lead your life. And so if you were to think that living a great life is about living according to your values, then you have to assume that some of those values are unique to you. So you have to define the game as your game. What's your favorite under the radar networking hack? So I, I, I don't know if this is networking, but I, I love to ask people what gets you excited these days because, you know, who doesn't want to talk about the things they're excited about? I think, though, what I really enjoy is asking people to be descriptive about where they're from and like what that was like. I think that tells me a lot more about you than you giving me the resume. Because the resume you're going to give me is linear. Even though I know it's been totally nonlinear. You're going to tell me, just like I went from a bank to a nonprofit, I'm going to say, well, it's because I wanted to understand a different point of view. I'm going to say some nonsense I said to get into business school, right? But, and, you know, this is what we say. But if I were to say, like, hey, what was it like? growing up where you did and like, how did that impact you? And, you know, what's going on? You know, how do you see that play out today? And where do you see you bucking that today? You know, um, I think people, you're not so prepared for it. So you give a much more raw and honest answer. That's a great note to end on. We'll wrap in now to our final set of questions, but this is just a chance to sort of share a little bit of what's giving you pleasure and what you're getting some enjoyment from. So what content blogs, posts, blog posts, books, podcasts are you currently listening to them and listening to them would like to share with our audience. If you think there's any worthwhile. I think for the last few years, I've really enjoyed listening to uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast. Um, he's a neuroscientist out of Stanford. And I think he's done not only done a lot of great research, but he's, he compiles a lot of great research and puts it into things that are very practical so I really enjoy his work. I mean, you know, I don't actually listen to a ton of, of podcast blogs, but wh when I do, like, I really enjoy hearing them. Like, you know, when this comes out, I enjoy hearing them, but I, I don't, not because I don't want to actually, I don't actually, because I feel like I'm going from sessions to my own self-reflection to the kids and then I want to go to sleep, you know? But I really do like that one. I think the All In podcast is really cool. I really enjoy that. I loved Michael Lewis's podcast. I haven't listened to it in a, in, in a little while. I've loved Tim Ferriss's. I'm going to really enjoy listening to yours, largely because I think of what you told me when you first told me about it is that it, it is a group of people that are seeking professional, but also personal sort of, I would say, success and knowing that those two aren't separate. And so I love that, that you're doing that. The books, the books I have recently enjoyed, I recently enjoyed 4,000 Weeks. I thought that was a, a really good book on sort of, you know, how we think about time. What's another one that I read very recently? I reread The Anatomy of Peace. I really like that book. 
I think that's a pretty good one. And then I haven't read as many recently that I could think of. I could go through my Kindle, but you can share a link to that. And then, well, and then what tools are you using currently? You mentioned a couple of apps earlier on, but what tools do you recommend? And are you using day to day that help you in your professional endeavors? So just life-wise, I use a Remarkable, if you know that tablet. And it's largely because I can be easily distracted. And I think it, it, you know, keeps me sort of a little more focused. I use Evernote. I've been using that for several years. So that's just kind of been my go-to. I use Superhuman for my email. I do think it's faster. And that's that I think has been helpful. Some tools for people who I think like maybe if they're looking at you know, sort of coaching stuff, like I said, habit bull or, you know, things around habits could be really good. Yeah. Those are, what are the tools do I use? I use my fitness pal when I'm tracking food. <laughs> you know, I use the aura ring. I use that for sleep because I, you know, I know sleep is everything we're thinking about right now, but it's, I don't get a lot. Like I sleep a lot of hours, but not as much good sleep. And so I'm trying to really get better sleep. Is it correct here in saying you're writing a book? Is that right? I am writing a book, yeah. And it's probably around a lot of the things that we're talking about right now. Effectively, it's we're, I think about all of our friends are doing incredibly well. And and there's still something left to be had. And I feel like, you know, that fulfillment is always elusive. And I think this is about going back to defining your game and making that not elusive and actually being able to have it. But it's the inherent tension between striving and being at peace, you know, on the journey. And I think I'm trying to do my best to help bridge the gap. This has been awesome. If people want to get in touch with you after they listen to the show, what's the best way for them to to contact you? I'd say on LinkedIn would be good as a former employee. I got to make a plug, you know, (laughs) But, but I'd say LinkedIn would be great. Prakash, thank you so much for joining us. This has been truly enlightening and that's been a great show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.